curious as you think about communion, to you is it a celebration? Is it an ordinance? Is it a sacrament? Or is it something you just do two times a year? We have a somewhat of a wide variety of backgrounds here. Maybe not as wide as some churches, but somewhat. We come from varying backgrounds and circumstances. And uh, how we think and approach communion could vary somewhat based on, thank you, based on that, uh, on our backgrounds. As I reflected on my background, you know, how we practice communion here is not a whole lot different than what I would have been used to as a, as a child. Um, really not much different at all. A little bit of difference in the nuance uh, between uh, how communion is served. Uh, in my church I came from in the east, the uh, bishop and deacon always made their way back down the aisles and served communion that way rather than the uh, coming forward. But I think that's pretty minor. I don't see that one's better than another. I did find it interesting that um, the Dutch Mennonites in their attempt to uh, reconcile some of the schisms that had happened there in the 1600s in that, in that time period as they were trying to reconcile some of these things, they found out that there was differences in the way communion was presented and the one faction did it the way I described to you as I was a child, and the other faction did it the way I described to you as we do it today. So whenever they had some reconciliation there, they did it one way one time and another way another time. That way nobody could feel like they were, um, it wasn't done right, the other bases covered. Anyway, so why are you here? Are you here because you must be or you're expected to be? Is it a habit or do you desire to be here? You know, it's it's interesting. We we say this at you know council. Uh, often you hear, "Why well, I, I desire to take communion," and I don't. I don't. Sometimes I wonder if that's not habit. I'm not sure how that is. Hopefully we desire that. I think we do. I am curious if you think that your being here this morning and participating in this service. If you will leave here a better person because of it, you think you'll receive a blessing because you were here and participated in this service this morning. Is it okay with you if you weren't here? Are you okay with it if somebody's missing? Or would you actually prefer somebody would be missing? We are unique. Uh, our Anabaptist background makes us unique in a, in a particular way because I think we get used to the fact that we're just a little bit odd. When it comes to Christianity, there's many things that we practice just a little bit uniquely different because of our, uh, our attempt to be Biblicist. I'm not sure we get that completely right, but we attempt. And because of that, we've gotten used to the fact that we do things a little bit differently than uh, than perhaps um, the uh, common run of Christianity. And I think sometimes we forget the fact that when it comes to communion, we practice communion just like every other 
Christian church up and down the road practices communion. Now, now, what I mean by that is every Christian church celebrates communion in one way, shape, or form. It, it's it's something that is universal. I don't know of a I don't know that you could be considered a Christian church and not celebrate this particular event. I'm not familiar. Maybe if you're familiar with a church that would call itself Christian and not celebrate communion, I'd be interested to hear about that because I, I don't know that they exist. That's part of being a Christian church. So in that way, we are very much the same as um, the vast realms of Christianity, whether true or, or untrue religion. Well, let's, uh, let's look at these different words. I've chosen to somewhat look at these different words and try to conclude which one of these four things that I suggested to you in the out start um, describes what we're doing here this morning. So let's, let's run through some definitions here first. So let's define communion. In the dictionary, this is simply a dictionary definition, it's an act or instance of sharing. It's a Christian sacrament in which consecrated bread and wine are consumed as memorials of Christ's death or as symbols of the realization of a spiritual union between Christ and communicant or as the blood and body of Christ, the act of receiving communion. Now, the, the truth of it is, you cannot have communion yourself. It's impossible. If you're going to have communion, there has to be at least one other person present. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But anytime the communion is spoken of in, in, the, in the text, in the biblical text, it's spoken of as a body participating. It's more than one person. It's always in the plural. So what's an ordinance? Now this is again a dictionary definition. It's an authoritative decree or direction, a law set forth by a governmental authority. It's something ordained or decreed by fate or a deity, a prescribed usage, practice, or ceremony. In a word, to boil it down, an ordinance, the way it's often used today, is a law. It's a heavy word and doesn't really carry much in the way of feeling. We talk about city ordinances and such, such like. It sort of carries the connotation that it's something of a requirement. I perform this because I don't have much option, and it is indeed in the best of my interest. The word ordinance is used twice in the New Testament. The government in Romans 13 is called the ordinance of God. And in 1 Peter, Peter calls us to submit to the ordinances of men. And both times, these things kind of carry a, a, a weighty, uh, unfeeling um, meaning. In the Latin, it simply means, or I'm sorry, not Latin, in the Greek, it simply means an arrangement. So, in some ways, that, that fits what we're doing here. It's an arrangement. Um, communion has been something that's been arranged by God, I would say. Okay, how about sacrament? This is what the dictionary says. A Christian rite that is believed to have been ordained by Christ and that is held to be a means of divine grace or to be a sign or a symbol of a spiritual reality. This is a usage that we 
I don't know if I've ever heard anybody get up in front of a congregation and say we're here to celebrate the sacrament of communion. I don't think I've ever heard that in our circles. And uh, we would likely contend that that's not a proper usage. But uh, as we move along here, I'd like to explore that just a little bit further as we we, uh, uh, move along here. So we'll just leave that for now. So how about something we do twice a year? How about a habit? What's a habit? A habit is a usual way of behaving, something that a person does often in a regular and repeated way. And we kind of think of habits as something that's somewhat moot. Um, it's just a habit. It's, you know, you can have good habits, you can have bad habits. Habits can be something that are done, generally habits are something that are done relatively frequently. Um, so I don't know whether this is a habit or not, but it certainly is something we expect. We, we do it twice a year. And um, uh, certainly nothing inherently wrong with a habit. Um, it can be, we can be, have good habits. So perhaps this would fit that. Perhaps this is a good habit. Not sure. I'm going to suggest this morning that this service consists of parts of all four of these words. And to compartmentalize communion and say it only fits one slot probably isn't being completely fair. Turn with me to Luke 22. I would like to to talk about the celebration aspect of communion for just a minute or two here. Luke 22, and I'm going to read a few verses starting at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall be a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good men of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? He shall show you a large upper room furnished there make ready. They went and found, as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. When the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took the bread and gave thanks and break it and said unto them, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. So to, to celebrate, as we mentioned, is to do something that's special for an important event. So does communion fit that definition? I'm going to suggest that it does. When we celebrate... Each participant is excited about the theme that we're celebrating. Okay, so uh, we recently celebrated a birthday at our house, and in a few weeks we'll celebrate a few more. We're kind of in birthday mode there at our house. But we were excited about the birthday because the one that, the birthday we were celebrating, it was our daughter. That that was was special. It It was our daughter. And it was her brothers and sisters. Isn't that right, Angie? We had a good time at your birthday, didn't we? 
And we did things special. We, uh, we, um, we had a special supper. It's because there's relationship. Now, we didn't go up to Claremont and just start knocking on doors and say, come down and celebrate birthday with us. Why? There's no relationship. There's just nothing there. Um, it, it isn't special to anybody in Claremont that we had a daughter born on September 11th. In fact, it's probably not overly special to you. I mean, yeah, somewhat, but not overly. It's most important to us as a family. Jesus here took his 12 disciples and he went into the, this guest chamber and he celebrated with them. Now, Jesus had other disciples. We know that from other passages. There was multitudes of other disciples. Nicodemus uh, was a disciple, howbeit secret. Uh, we have Joseph of Arimathea that actually buried Jesus. He was a disciple, somewhat secret maybe, but there was others as well. But Jesus took his closest friends and he celebrated communion with them. What comes to be known as communion anyway? I would suggest that this is at least part of the reason for practicing what we call close communion. As I mentioned, we don't go to birthday parties and anniversary parties of people we don't know. We don't do that. It's just, it's just, you know, what if I just waltzed into a anniversary party that I'm driving by the road and I see this is happening and I, I don't have a clue who it is or what. It's just not the way we do things. It would be looked on rather dimly, I would suggest. Likewise with communion. We are here as a close body of believers to celebrate communion. Now, we are not passing judgment on somebody that doesn't celebrate it with us just simply because, um, well, let me back up. We are not saying that by our practice of close communion that somebody is not a Christian. We are not passing judgment on that person. What we're saying is we as a close family want to do this together. Okay? I have relatives that I don't even know. Well, I mean, you know, dig out the, the genealogy books, and there's people that I am related to rather closely that I have no idea who they are. So I have no relationship with them, even though I'm the relative. Same way. Um, bring it into this dynamic. I'm not saying you don't have a birthday just because I don't celebrate your birthday. Indeed, you do. And I'm not saying you're not related to me just because um, I don't know that. You could well be. You, you, you see the picture. We share this with people we know. And as, as a matter of fact, I found it interesting that in the early church, when there was much interest in this new movement called Christianity, there would be um, numerous, many visitors would come to these Christian events, services. And whenever they celebrated communion, they literally cleared the church house. Well, I don't know if it's a church house, but wherever they were meeting, they literally cleared out all the visitors. They said, okay, it's time for you to leave now. They shut the doors, they locked them, and they, and they celebrated communion. That was their way of close communion. Now, it, it raised suspicion about the Christians because they were, people uh, started to become suspicious that there was something untoward happening behind those closed doors. But it wasn't. It was just close communion. All right. Whenever we celebrate something, we make room in our schedule to be there. In many, in many ways, communion is somewhat like a wedding rehearsal. Jesus says that we're supposed to do this, but he said, I'm not going to do it until I do it new with you in the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says. 
Can you imagine not showing up for your wedding rehearsal? It's ah, too busy. You know, go ahead, tell your girlfriend or whatever, go ahead, get that done with, but I'm not going to be there. Too busy. You make room for stuff that's important to you. I hope this is an important event for you. With a celebration, there is preparation. Where's the party going to be? Who's going to serve it? How are we going to do it? What are we going to eat? Jesus made preparation here. He told his, his, his Peter and Jane, John, he says, go, find this person, talk to the, to the master of the house, find the room, get ready, prepare for it. We're admonished in other parts of the scripture that we prepare for communion by examining ourselves, by seeing if we are ready for communion. We, we uh, attempt peace between each other. Uh, we, we hope for that. We try to make peace. But we at least attempt that. That's part of preparation. Historically, I, f I find it interesting that historically, um, it was often commonplace that um, the church would fast in preparation for communion. That was part of the, just part of the expected norm. It's maybe something that we have lost as we have uh, aged. I'm not sure. But anyway, preparation. Are you prepared? I hope you are today. And then when we celebrate... We celebrate something extraordinary. It's not often that we celebrate just because we can. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we'll kid about this at home. We'll have a special meal or something, and, and we'll say, well, what's the celebration? We'll say, well, it's, we're just celebrating life. It's just, it's just time to celebrate, nothing in particular. But often we don't. When we, when we think of celebration, it's for a reason. Jesus said, this is the New Testament in my blood. This, this bread is my body. This cup is my blood. It's new and it's important. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. This is extraordinary. I think it's, I don't think it's a big deal or terribly important how often the communion service is celebrated. Um, that varies widely from church to church, body to body. But I think there's something to doing it twice a year that, that at least um, makes it seem extraordinary. And I think there's something uh, to be said for that. However, I want to quickly add that I don't think there's anything in the Bible that says you couldn't do it every Sunday or every month or whatever, and that wouldn't be appropriate. I, I, I certainly wouldn't say that. But anyway, so I'm going to call us today to at least, in a way, celebrate. Now, often celebrations speak of frivolity and hilarity and kind of lightness, and I wouldn't want to see this service deteriorate into something like that. But there is a part of us today that can celebrate the fact that, you know what? If it wouldn't be for Jesus' blood, his death and resurrection, we'd be in poor shape. We really would be. All right, so how about an ordinance? Is this an ordinance today? We often call it an ordinance. We, we list it as one of our, quote, quote, seven ordinances. In the English, it means law, as I alluded to, and in the Greek, it means an arrangement or an institution. So in the case of an ordinance, you do or you practice an ordinance because you are instructed to do that. In, a, in the event of a town or a county, we have these ordinances, and they don't just pass ordinances for fun. Now, sometimes you wonder what anybody was thinking whenever they passed some of these ordinances. I must, you know, I will concur with that. 
But generally speaking, it, it is for a purpose. It's not just for whatever. Uh, often towns will have uh, uh, an ordinance that there's no cows in town. Now, they're not passing that ordinance because they just want to make it difficult for you. They're passing the ordinance because they want to try to keep the town somewhat fly-free and from being overrun with manure and, you know, all the things that go with cows. So they say cows are for the country. So Jesus says, this do, this do in remembrance of me. So we practice this today because it's an ordinance. It's a quote, quote, can I use the word law? It's something Jesus said, you do it. And as I already suggested, they have a reason. Um, in my little illustration of cows in town, um, probably your property value would be somewhat lowered if your, if your uh, neighbors had cows. It would really limit the amount of people that would want to buy your property if you wanted to sell it. I would say that many times ordinances are for our benefit. And again, I would suggest to you that this ordinance of communion is for our benefit. It's so that we, at least twice a year, put it in front of us. This is what Jesus did for us. We're going to remember that. It's a memorial. Uh, there's many places in this country where you have what they call war memorials. Now, why do they have war memorials? They have them because they are, they are bound to determine not to forget the sacrifice that was made by those veterans that gave the ultimate sacrifice of their life for our, quote, quote, freedom. This is a memorial. And I think somewhat as a... Uh, and aside to that, as we think of us sharing this as a body, we do it to show solidarity with our brothers. All right. Another thing with ordinances is when an ordinance is not followed, there is a penalty. If I live in Claremont and I say, big deal, I say I can't have a cow, I'm just going to buy a cow anyway. Do you think that uh, the the... The powers that be are just going to wink at that and say, well, you know, let that, let that go. Not so much. Um, they're going to come and they're going to take my cow or whatever, whatever they need to do. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he says, If you eat and drink unworthily, you eat and drink damnation to yourself, not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, he's saying there's a penalty if you don't do this thing correctly. You, you do it right, because otherwise it's going to be hard on you. It's not a good thing. Get it right. I find it quite interesting that um, in a previous era, uh, communion, I think, was somewhat held in, in somewhat of a higher esteem than what, what maybe I and we collectively think of it today. Um, I'll just read to you what our church constitution says. Our church constitution is now 40 plus years old, but in, in, there's a little part in there that says offenses. Now, part of the offenses is grievous things like adultery and fornication and slander and, and all these, they're real offenses, okay? But now one of the offenses goes like this. It says, members who fail to commune at three successive communion services lose their membership. 
unless satisfactory reasons are conveyed to the bishop in charge. I just found that interesting. Um, at least somewhere along the line, there was there was so much um, communion was thought to be so highly um, regarded that it was like if you miss three, uh, you forfeit your membership. I, I wonder if we still feel that gravely about it. Yeah, I'll just I'll just leave you with that with food for thought. Was that a little overreactionary? Should that be taken out of the offenses? Or have we somewhat um, poo-pooed um, communion more than what we maybe should have? I'll just leave you to think about that. I, I'm not sure what, um, what my thoughts completely are. All right, how about the word sacrament? Let's look at sacrament a little bit. Word choices make a difference about how we feel about things. So if I would tell you that we didn't receive but a quarter inch of rain last night, and I feel lucky that, that that's all we got, what would you think? Or if I said, you know, we only received a quarter inch of rain last night, I'm blessed. See, the way I, or the way I word that sentence makes you think differently about the way I think about it. When I say lucky, you think, well, hey, you know, it just the clouds just kind of moved and that's the way it was. When I say blessed, I'm insinuating that I believe that there was somebody in control of things out there that actually controlled those clouds and he didn't see, he, 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 he regarded my low estate and didn't send me three inches of rain last night, okay? I actually prayed that we wouldn't get that much. I don't know. Hopefully that was all right. So think about that. Think about another word here that I'm going to throw out to you. What if I said that my, my wife is a housewife? Or if I said she's a homemaker? See, it sends two different messages. If it's a housewife, you're, you're thinking of some harried, hardly under control, bandanaed, you know, sweat of the brow type of a person. Getting the job done, but barely. If you think of a homemaker, you think of somebody that loves the position. And it's, it's a cozy dwelling, and she revels in the, in the ability to be this homemaker. Same thing, but two different messages. Now, I don't know how to say this word, but uh, how about an apariast? I think I'm saying that right. What if I said that uh, Mark or my son is an Apparist. I don't know. Whatever. I'm really slaughtering the word. And I know by the blank looks on everybody's faces, you're not getting it. But that's that's the high and lofty name for a beekeeper. Okay. And it sends a it sends a um, it sends a different message. You know, it, it sends it sends a, a message of someone that has skill. And the words go on and on. Um, farmer versus dairyman. You know, farmer. You think of somebody in big overalls like myself. A dairyman, you think of Warren, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. <laughs> so, uh, you know, different different connotations. I'm going to suggest that it's the same way with the word sacrament. We shy away from that word because of grave abuses of the of the way we thought about that in times past. The the Church of the Middle Ages abused this word gravely. And it came to be thought of 
as something that imparted grace to me. And if I received the sacrament, I could go and live my life as I jolly well pleased. I could sin all day long, but next Sunday I'd come and receive the sacrament again. And that balance of receiving the bread and wine versus sinning kept me kind of, you know, it kind of kept me going. I received some sort of grace. It sort of left people with a connotation of superstition or something quasi-pagan. But it is true that many of the early Anabaptist leaders used the word sacrament in their writings freely. Freely used it. Had no qualms with it. I would like to just explore this word briefly with you so you understand exactly what it means. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. So in Ephesians 5 here, in uh, verses, well, starting about verses 22 to 33, Paul here is given an exposition on the uh, dynamics between a husband and a wife and how this, how this relates to the dynamics between the body, us, and, and Christ. And in verse 32, Okay, verse 31, he says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined into his wife, and they shall be, and the two shall be one flesh. Now look what he says in verse 32. He says, This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. After Paul gets talking about this thing of how this works when a man and a wife are joined, he said, This is a great mystery. Now, we get our word sacrament from the Latin words sacramentum or something like that. And if you would read the Latin Bible, it would read like this. This is a great sacrament. That's the way it's, that's the way it's worded. So really, sacrament really in its boiled down definition means mystery. It's a mystery. Paul is saying that the pronouncement of a person as man and wife makes them one flesh in a way that he can't completely explain to you. See, now the world, they totally don't get that at all. They see no problem with sexual relationships outside of marriage because what is words? What is the pronouncement of man and wife? It's nothing. They don't see that as joining uh, two people into one body. So they divorce the two. Paul is suggesting that there's a spiritual reality behind these words and that the physical act of joining a man and a wife has a spiritual dynamic. He makes the same argument in 1 Corinthians 6. He talks about um, joining ourselves to a harlot and this sort of thing. And he says, don't you know that when you join yourself to a harlot that you're actually defaming Christ? He doesn't make the argument that you should refrain from this activity like the world does because of HIV and STDs. He's saying you're, you're actually doing something here that just doesn't work. You're, you're trying to join Christ to a harlot. It doesn't work. Let me give you a few more examples. At the baptism of Jesus, we have a physical act of baptism. We have a spiritual reality of this dove and this voice. Okay, Physical reaches into the spiritual. 1 Corinthians 11, we have the veiling taught, a very physical thing. But somehow Paul says there's power there because of the angels. So in other words, this is touching the spiritual again. James 5, anointing with oil. Now we go to, we go 
and we espouse to the fact that the oil has nothing to do with healing. It's not the oil. But have you ever been to an anointing service where they said, well, since the oil has nothing to do with it, we just won't use oil. We'll have an anointing service without oil. You don't hear that. Again, it is a physical that reaches into the spiritual. I'm going to suggest to you today that this communion is more than just symbolic. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take you to uh, 1 Corinthians 10 just to uh, solidify that. So, First uh, Corinthians ten sixteen, the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. Now, what's it say? For we are all partakers of that one bread. I'm going to suggest that perhaps we don't understand the dynamic. Of the literally, of, of us literally partaking of the bread and wine this morning here, what that does for us uniting as a body and identifying with Christ. I really believe that there is a spiritual dynamic behind that that perhaps we have somewhat missed or weakened as we, as we have run away from the whole idea of a sacrament. The other thing I would just point out to you in 1 Corinthians 11, and I won't turn to that, but again, Paul says, if you do this unworthily, you do this wrong, you are actually imparting judgment on yourself. You, you are actually going to face judgment because of, that, because of that act. So what he's saying is, by physically partaking of the bread and wine, and you're doing that knowingly, um, unworthily, there's a spiritual reality that comes with that. All right. So I would just like, I would just like us to, to think about that. I am not at all suggesting, I know I'm probably on shaky water here and, and could be misunderstood. I'm not suggesting that somehow this will cover sin. But what I am saying, if it's taken lightly and done wrongly, there is a spiritual dynamic in this physical act that we're about to partake in. It's not completely symbolic. All right, so how about a habit? A usual way of behaving. Folks, this is a good habit. There's nothing wrong with this good habit. There's nothing wrong with twice a year getting together and, and celebrating this, this ordinance, this sacrament, this you fill in the blank. We are going to greatly miss a blessing if it is only a habit, though. I will have to say that. If this is only habit and you're just here because, hey, it's expected of me, um, we'll probably find ourselves in the same boat that those Corinthians did when Paul says, there's many weak and sickly among you and many sleep. It's quite easy for us to uh, just let things become habits and uh, eventually lose an appetite for it. Well, it's time for me to wrap this up. Jesus said in Luke 22, he said, with desire or with a longing. Actually, that word desire carries the meaning of lust, actually. He says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I would just ask you and I this morning, can you say that? Can you say, can you say back to Jesus that with desire, 
I have desired to eat this bread and drink this cup this morning. I hope that's our desire. May the Lord bless you.